As more states decriminalize marijuana, either for medical purposes or personal use, many say that the need for lawyers specializing in cannabis law is growing. But is the profit potential worth it for attorneys, considering that cultivation, sale, and use of marijuana are still illegal under federal law? I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and joining me to answer that question on today's Asked and Answered is Ryan Espigard, a senior associate with Seattle's Gordon Thomas Honeywell. He practices in Washington State, where it's legal for individuals 21 and over to have small amounts of marijuana, and the items are taxed by the state. Ryan, how did you get involved in cannabis law? Well, thank you, Stephanie. I first began getting involved in cannabis law right around the time uh, Washington was legalizing marijuana, which was in November of 2012. Uh, I had an interest in um, the the outcome of that legalization and the impact it was going to have, particularly on land use issues, just a particular interest of mine. I began participating in public hearings and following that issue, and through that participation began developing a client base that has kind of snowballed since then. Would you say, do you have a specialty, and if so, is it land use in terms of where places can be? Yeah, so uh, my, my specialty prior to the cannabis industry in Washington involved a lot of different types of litigation. Land use litigation was one of those categories. So I took a personal interest in cannabis related to land use litigation at that time. But since cannabis has become legal and my practice has shifted towards the regulatory aspects of cannabis, uh, my practice has changed significantly towards the business aspects and regulatory aspects of the industry. Okay. And would you say in your experience representing cannabis-focused businesses, is that different than representing a bar or maybe a pharmaceutical company? Uh, Yes and no. Uh, They have many of the same legal issues as any business would have. Uh, Our clients are asking us to form business entities, help them with state law, help them with their, their financiers, help them with property transactions. However, there are some differences. There's a wide range of business and legal knowledge that our clients may have. We have some very uh, skilled business people as part of our cannabis clients. And we also have some people that you know, really haven't ever worked with a lawyer um, and do need a lot of hand-holding, uh, which may be different than some of, uh, some of the other practices. Additionally, there are unique legal issues related to marijuana business in Washington that changes the dynamic of the advice that we're giving our clients. I'm curious, as I mentioned earlier, it is technically still a federal offense, whether or not the feds enforce that. It seems to, uh, it doesn't really seem to be happening right now, but I do think that's a question a lot of lawyers wrestle with. I mean, did, did you wrestle with that concern that what if I have a federal government issue? I personally have not wrestled with that issue. As far as being able to represent clients in the cannabis industry, I I have from day one thought it is completely appropriate to represent these clients. There's an issue of conflict of law between federal law and state law at at this time, Um, but I don't believe it's right to deny legal services to this entire industry, entire group of people that needs legal representation probably more than most. However, there are obviously RPC or ethical obligations that attorneys have to not assist clients in um, violating criminal law, but our state has adopted a comment to the, the RPCs to kind of address that and, and relieve some of the tension. I'm going to stop you for one that. second. When you say RPC, you mean rules of professional conduct, right? Yes, okay. Washington's ethical rules are, are referred to as the rules of professional conduct, RPC. You mentioned that this industry needs legal help more than most. Why do you say that? 
Well, one of the main issues, obviously, is, is the criminal aspect, but even stepping away from that, uh, in Washington, these folks are stepping into uncharted territory. The, the regulations are new. No one's had to deal with them before. The zoning issues that cities and counties are, are developing are, are completely new. The financing rules that folks need to follow if they're going to enter into any of these business types are completely new. If folks don't have uh, legal representation as they're trying to go through the licensing process and run these businesses, they will surely run into difficulties at some point. So I do think it's critical that all of them have legal representation to to do it right. Can you tell me about the process you uh, went through to find a firm, a business firm, that would support you in this area of law? How did you go about finding the right fit? And do you think it was a bit more difficult because you were interested in cannabis law? I, I wasn't searching for a firm. I was already in the right place. I was here with a firm that kind of valued the entrepreneurial aspects of, of associates. Um, I, like I said, had been doing a lot of litigation work, but had been expressing interest in representing a client base uh, that was interested in, in, in getting involved in the cannabis industry. The firm that I was, was in, again, valued that you know, entrepreneurial aspect of what I was trying to do and, and was open to it. Um, some of the partners here were, you know, not eager for us to uh, jump into that arena, and others thought it was very appropriate and, and encouraged me to do so. But in the end of the day, everybody is, has embraced it as, as a very legitimate practice area, and, and I, I think I feel lucky to have uh, started my career here. Do you get the sense in Washington State that maybe a few years ago some partners would be like, no, I don't really think we should do that, but now people are much more open to the, having the practice idea, a practice area at their firm? Is it getting more acceptance and maybe less nervousness from the practice? Definitely getting more acceptance. Um, at about the time when I was starting to become involved with cannabis businesses, there were other firms in Washington of our size that simply were developing policies to refuse to provide legal services um, to cannabis businesses on the ethical issue that we mentioned before. They didn't want to trip over the rules of professional conduct. There are other individuals, and we encountered this in our our own firm, um, that were concerned about just the impression it may leave with other clients. We, We may have clients that disagree personally with the legalization of marijuana, and do we want to hold ourselves out as representing that industry uh, if it conflicts with uh, the personal beliefs of our other clients. I'm sure other firms have have wrestled with that as well. But over the last couple of years, we've seen more and more firms uh, embrace this business and they are actively marketing to the cannabis community now where, where they weren't two years ago. Okay. And I'm curious, in your client communications in most of that, do you state something about the caveat of federal law and client communications? Yes, we do. Uh, we don't, not in all of our communications, but in our uh, original engagement letter representation agreement, it, it does have Can a you, statement about... What does it say, basically? Could you tell me? Yeah, I'm not going to read it verbatim, but it okay. essentially acknowledges, it acknowledges that the distribution and possession of marijuana remains a federal crime. We acknowledge it in that letter. We inform our clients that we're not giving advice specific to uh, the criminal aspects on a federal level of that crime and shouldn't construe any advice we're giving as helping them to commit that crime. Rather, our, the advice that we're giving is to comply and, and navigate Washington state law. And is that language that the firm crafted itself, or is it pretty much pulled from your uh, rules of professional conduct, or maybe a little bit of both? No, it was actually very, it was developed by our firm specifically. The, our rules of professional conduct um, still have kind of a caveat in there about whether or not this is going to be okay. There's a, a comment that specifically allows 
attorneys to represent people in the cannabis industry up until the federal government changes its enforcement priorities. So um, even with the ethical rules that we have now, it's, it's not on a solid footing if the federal government would change its, its stance towards this industry. What are some business development activities in terms of cannabis clients that have worked well for you that you can share with us? Well, the, the number one activity of value for me um, was simply participating in the rulemaking for uh, the state rulemaking for development of uh, regulations for the cannabis industry and also participating in public hearings regarding local zoning. I was doing that out of a personal interest at the time and attending those hearings and, and being seen by folks that were interested in the cannabis industry helped me develop the client base immediately. So that is definitely a recommendation I would have. Another good source of clients is simply from other attorneys that are holding themselves out to be representing the cannabis industry. There are numerous solo practitioners and small firms in Washington that are, are representing such clients, and they are running into conflicts uh, frequently between their clients and have to refer work out. So that has been another great source of uh, client development. What would, uh, like, can you give me an example of what a conflict might be for a small firm in the cannabis industry? Um, we have, just as an example, uh, some of the, the people that have gone into business together two years ago are already running into conflicts amongst themselves. So there is some business litigation developing. And where you may have had a firm that helped organize that business, they can't represent those clients again. Another possible conflict that seems to come up a lot is there are a lot of transactions between these businesses and, and licenses of, of people trying to invest in these businesses. So if an attorney represents uh, one particular business and was adverse to an investor at one point, they may not be able to represent the same people in another deal. So a lot of the business transactions were getting referrals to represent the opposite side. Okay. And are there things you see lawyers trying to do to develop business that maybe don't work? very well. Um, I know in the general media you hear about a lot of times they'll have like seminars when uh, legal marijuana is coming to your state and I'm wondering how helpful those are because anyone can go or maybe you're calling yourself your, the 420 lawyer. I don't know if that's a great idea if people will take you seriously. <laughs> um, what are some things that maybe you thought would work for business development for yourself but didn't? Everything that we've done, I think, has had some sort of value to it as far as reaching out to potential clients and, and meeting them and, and starting that process. But the, the one thing where I have maybe felt after the fact that it wasn't as valuable as I had hoped are attending some industry events. And that might be some of the seminars you're, you're referring to. You can go to, um, I mean, Washington has it all the time now, a, a monthly seminar or, or convention taking place. And it's, it's good to go there and learn some issues and meet some people. But you don't always, unless you have a, a speaking opportunity at that particular seminar, you're not going to have the kind of contact you want with all of the potential applicants. I have found it much more valuable to, to go somewhere where the people are attending a particular event, caring about a particular issue, and being able to speak at that event. Okay. So that's pretty much, I think, how it always is, is business development for lawyers. If you can speak, of course, it's much better for you. Another question that I think maybe people don't like to talk about a lot, but it certainly is important. How do you determine with potential clients who's serious and who has the financial backing to pay you to get done what they want to have happen? 
Well, you know, the, the first meeting you have with potential clients, you can kind of assess that. Um, like I said, we're seeing a wide range of business expertise with clients when they come in the door. Um, some have been, you know, have decades of business experience and some have, you know, quite frankly, been growing marijuana in their basement for decades and don't mm-hmm. have that kind of business experience. And you can assess that pretty quickly um, and make a decision as to whether you want to represent you know, that particular individual or not. Um, as far as whether or not they'll be able to uh, pay their bills, I, I think that's the same with any type of client or any, any industry. We ask for advanced fee deposit on a kind of case-by-case basis to kind of give us a some mm-hmm. assurance that there'll be money there to pay their legal bills. You mentioned the person who's been growing marijuana in their basement for a long time. I'm wondering if maybe, is that really the client you want? Or maybe it is the client you want, and maybe as a business lawyer, you maybe would partner them with somebody who's been in business a long time and make connections. You know, it is a, it's a difficult judgment call to make. I personally don't want to work with people that don't have any business skill and, and you know, I don't feel they're going to succeed in the business activities they're engaging in. Um, at the same time, I have taken clients where that was kind of my first impression of them and then I've been very pleased to have had a different result at the end of the day. They've turned out to be great clients and, um, you know, value my advice and we're, we're working together to have help them succeed. So it, it is a difficult judgment call to make and hopefully you get it right. Okay. And say you're an attorney and you're not interested in doing cannabis law, but you have a client who is interested in that. What is a way that you as an attorney can find a good referral for your client? How can you find a lawyer who really is good in the cannabis industry and can back it up? Well, the primary, at least in Washington, the primary thing you want to have with an attorney who's claiming to be a cannabis attorney is a very good understanding of the particular rules that the industry is facing in the state. So each state is developing its own rules for their own industry, and those rules intertwine with every legal aspect and every question that an attorney or a client may have. So I would I would start out by simply interviewing or, or, or having a phone call with a potential attorney regarding those rules to kind of assess their understanding of them. There are plenty of attorneys there too that aren't labeling themselves as a cannabis attorney or you know, representing cannabis businesses in all aspects. They might be um, representing clients as a kind of a subset of their existing practice. An example might be, you know, if you're, you're an attorney that does a lot of IP work, um, intellectual property. Uh, that attorney might market to new cannabis businesses. Uh, the same might be for a real estate attorney. You might market to property owners that might become landlords to these businesses. And those attorneys that are doing that type of work can get some specialized knowledge on the, the regulatory issues they need to know. And I think that you bring up an interesting point, that issue of marketing yourself as a cannabis lawyer, maybe even putting cannabis in the name of your firm. Now, you don't do that. Can you tell me wh- why you opted not to do that? So uh, the approach that I've taken from the beginning was rather than re- representing myself as a cannabis attorney, we wanted to represent our firm as a whole as a firm that provided a wide range of legal services to businesses and uh, a firm that would treat a cannabis business just like any other legal business. And that has gone a long way, I think, for us versus you know representing ourselves as the marijuana firm. 
However, there are other firms in Washington that are taking the opposite approach and have had great success doing that. One example, real-life example, is the Cannell Law Group in Washington. They exclusively practice, or those attorneys exclusively practice in the cannabis industry, but their law firm is not the Cannell Law Group. That's actually uh, a name they use for a practice group of the larger firm, which is Harris Moore in Seattle. So they'll market a subset of their firm as this cannabis-specific law firm, and, and they've had great success doing that. And can you estimate for me what percentage of your client matters are related to the cannabis industry? That has been changing, uh, I guess, month to month. Now, I would say it's probably 70% of what I do is in some way assisting a client related to cannabis matters. If you asked me that question a year ago, it would have been probably 30%. Um, so it is very quickly changing. Okay. That's everything that I wanted to ask you. Did you want to add anything else? Um, I don't know if I have anything in particular to add, but if anybody you know, listening to the podcast has questions, I'm always willing to answer them if they, they reach out with email or phone calls. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And listeners, thank you for joining us. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward. You've been listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered. Please tune in next time.